Walter Balper, the T1 of Brass, from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. That is, his weekly Monday appearance, except on a Tuesday, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. It's not uncommon for Dave Cameron, during his weekly appearances, to analyze all baseball. And this particular edition of Fangraphs Audio is no exception to that steadfast rule. What one finds here specifically is a conversation of John Singleton, Houston first base prospect, who has become the first player to sign a long-term extension before recording a plate appearance in the major leagues. We also discuss the Houston Astros generally. Did you know that they were above 500 during the month of May and that they also played like a team that should be above 500? This is novel for them recently. Also as part of uh, what follows is the following thought experiment. Uh, proposed by Dave Cameron himself. Uh, I do think it would be interesting if, for instance, a team said, uh, we're going to let the players decide who gets paid what. So maybe, you know, you're the Yankees, you have a $220 million budget or whatever it is, and you tell the, the players on the Yankees, we're going to put $220 million into a room, and you figure out how to divvy it up. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. I got a different internet right now. You have a different internet? Yeah, you know how sometimes I've had that internet where um, it just goes away? Yeah. Well, now I'm in a different place, so I don't have that one anymore. Okay. Well, I would bet it's the same internet. Well. So you probably still have the, you're probably still on the one with all the cat pictures. The cat pictures? The cat pictures. So yeah, I guess. The, that's the internet we're all using, right? Yeah, that's true. And if you were to be actually honest, then I think you would admit that there are other things Besides cat pictures for which people use the internet. That's true. There are also dog pictures. Yeah. Yeah. It, <clears throat> what portion of memory on the internet do you think is dedicated, I guess, uh, on the one hand to to uh, naked people doing terrible things to each other, and on the other hand, animals? Uh, well, I don't think memory is the correct correct term. What is uh, that? Bandwidth? I yeah, think okay. bandwidth would be what you would want to use. Yeah, right, so bandwidth. What percentage? I think probably like 80% porn, 20% everything else. Yeah. That's just a total guess. Have you ever seen Have you ever seen a YouTube video of um, animals and babies interacting? Um, I don't know if I've seen a specific one that you're referring to. I have seen YouTube videos of animals and babies. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. How about, have you seen one of... Um, different species of animals, um, like nothing so simple, something more exotic than just dogs and cats, like maybe like a dog, like a dog and a pig or something, like them, them interacting. Have you ever seen that? I saw one with like a dog and I think an elephant that were oh. like swimming in the ocean together and they were like really good friends. Yeah. Does that warm your heart when you see that or are you sort yeah. of impervious to that? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a heart to warm. Right? Yeah, right, According yeah. to the internet commentators, I have no soul, so I don't want to uh, to tilt the 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 perception of me. Any, right. Any okay. Further, all right. So, so we we'll, we won't talk about your emotions then for the yeah. rest of this edition of the the podcast. Yeah, I, so, I am a guy. We, we emotional talking is. Yeah. No. No. That's that's out of out of the uh, out of character. I'm actually. Um, I'll tell you right now. I'm in uh, Rome, Italy. It's a good place to be. I guess it is, yeah. And tomorrow, uh, uh, tomorrow, just for the night, I will be in Bari, Italy, where 
um, I believe, uh, Rene Sajati. Rene Sajati or Sajiati. Uh, he's a baseball, you will sometimes see him, uh, he's a baseball person. Oh, the, the scout for Italy. Yeah, the scout, yeah, from yeah. Italy, yeah. 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 He lives in, yes. I think he lives in Bari. Okay. But we won't be able to see each other because I think he has a, some sort of trip, so. Right. Too bad. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. But anyway, it's working right now, it appears. Good. And, uh, it has, uh, it has been possible in Italy, uh, to get certain information about, uh, baseball, which, which I'm prepared for you to analyze. Oh, good. We're going to talk about Alex Liddy, aren't we? No, we're not going to talk about Alex Liddy. I would assume that's the only baseball coverage in Italy, is Alex Liddy. No. Oh, no. Who is that? But who is the the Italian that actually – I think he signed one of the, the largest European – or largest bonuses for a european base player. The Royal signed him, perhaps? Yeah, that sounds about right. David Lorla interviewed him, I think. Probably true. David Lorla, I think, has interviewed everyone who's ever worn a uniform. Yeah, right. All right. Well, so, so you're not remembering the name. No, no, okay. absolutely not. All right, well, neither, neither, maybe I will uh, illicitly uh, uh, Google it during this conversation. But let's talk about a more domestic issue. Okay, so you, the, you, we've heard, we've discussed at other times, earlier times on uh, on the podcast, attempts that teams may or may not have made to um, to extend players, signed to long term deal, uh, young players who have recorded zero major league plate appearances. Yes, I think we've talked about this with Gregory Polanco, uh, where the Pirates reportedly uh, offered him a deal if he didn't want to spend a few months in the minor leagues. Uh, he turned them down, so he's still there. Right. And we also, and there's also maybe some belief that the the Rays, when they signed Evan Longoria, that at some level um, his promotion was tied to the extension um, that he signed, what, just the what, 20... six, days, six days later. Yeah, right, right. So, you don't you don't come up with a long term contract in six days. That deal was done before he got promoted. Right. So, and then it was only, I guess, what confirmed, officially signed uh, after he'd been promoted. Uh, it was announced uh, a week later, <laughs> basically. But uh, the, you know, the, the it was one of those things where those are time consuming processes. Uh, the wheels were in motion. Right. But th- now we have a we have a, an honest to goodness instance with Houston first base prospect John Singleton now, where a player actually signed a deal. What didn't he actually sign the deal before he was a f- before the official transaction that sent him to the majors? Uh, well, they so the Astros announced the moves as hey, we're calling up John Singleton, and oh by the way, he signed a five year contract with three team options. So they basically announced them at the same time. They're, the Astros got a rid of pretense at this point. Like there's no hidden. Uh, oh yeah, we're, we're trying to not acknowledge the service time issues. The Astros are just being upfront about this. We called him up because he signed this deal. Well, okay, and so let's talk about what has been stopping teams from being upfront about it. Is it because it, it's just, uh, it's a maybe bad form to acknowledge the fact that these things are tied together so closely? Yeah, I think so there, you, when you're dealing with service time manipulation issues, uh, the, the teams cannot publicly say, like the Pirates can't say, we're leaving Gregory Polanco in the minors until after the Super 2 deadline uh, because we don't want him to make as much money. The uh, union would file a grievance and be like, hey, you publicly admitted that you're making a decision in order to screw this guy out of money that you admit that he probably should be making right now. 
And, you know, I think we've seen this where teams um, have, a, you know, incentive-based contracts where, you know, a player is going to have a vesting option at some number of plate appearances, and before he gets to that plate appearances limit, he loses his job. If the team came out and was like, we uh, don't want that option to vest, we don't want to pay him $11 million next year, uh, so we're going to bench him so that we don't have to pay that option, the union would throw a giant fit, and uh, they would, you know, take them to arbitration or sue them or however it would work in, in terms of, CBA negotiation and, and figuring out how to handle that. So the teams basically have to operate in a way where they don't uh, incriminate themselves, even if everyone knows what they're doing. It's kind of like the mob, right? Like the mob operates in uh, areas and everyone kind of knows they do it, but they can't just come out and like go to the police station and be like, hey, we're the mob, we're shaking <laughs> this guy down, come watch on the corner. So, so... But now, uh, what is what do we suppose is the difference with this? Is it because there has there has be, uh, this culture, uh, this trend of signing players earlier, so, uh, especially sort of high-level prospects, to long-term deals earlier and earlier in their respective careers. I, is it because of this, the sort of slow transformation? Um, that's that's is that what has enabled to sign the Astros, uh, or has enabled the Astros to sign Singleton so early, just because um, there's been sort of a, a gradual trend in this direction? Well, I think, you know, there's probably a, a conflict or a, a confluence of reasons why Singleton was the first guy to sign. Uh, you know, he's, as I noted in the post, he has a history of, uh, what he refers to himself as a drug addict. And so I think there's a little bit of special case here where, you know, perhaps from his own personal perspective, his risk tolerance level was probably lower than others, where maybe another player like Polanco or George Springer, even, uh, with the Astros who turned down a similar kind of offer, uh, would say, you know what, I believe in my, if I believe I'm gonna have a really good career, uh, I can, you know, spend at least a couple of years in the majors, prove myself, increase my value, and then ask for a lot more money. Uh, where with Singleton, you know, I think maybe rightfully so, he might not have as much confidence in himself and say, I know I have a problem, perhaps this problem is going to, you know, present an issue for me in the future, maybe I should take the guaranteed money now, and, you know, hopefully not have that problem in the future, but I have a higher risk level uh, because of this issue. Uh, so I think with, with Singleton, there, there are some exogenous factors that uh, probably factored into his decision to be the first guy to, to take a deal that is absolutely team-friendly. There's no question that, you know, the Players Association is not happy with this deal. Uh, you know, this is not a good deal for Jonathan Singleton outside of the fact that, you know, he has some significant risk factors that maybe made this a better idea for him than for some other players. But his... Um... I mean, in terms of what he offers offensively, uh, it could, it, I mean, he could be quite a good player. He could. All right, there's upside here, which is why the Astros did this. I mean, it, you know, let's say Singleton, Singleton's not a Prince Fielder kind of prospect, but let's say he turns into that kind of player. Maybe he overachieves a little bit. He becomes a 35-40 home run uh, power-hitting first base guy, uh, you know, an above-average player. Uh, who drives in a lot of runs and hits, you know, hits home runs. And so he, he excels in the kinds of things that arbitrators have generally overpaid and, and the market overvalues. Uh, it's very easy to project that he would have gotten, you know, somewhere in the range of $40 million in his arbitration years if he became that kind of player. And then he gave up his uh, first year of free agency. So, you know, if he's like that kind of player, a slugging, power hitting first baseman, he gets to free agency still in his 20s, you know, that's probably a 20 or $25 million player, especially seven years from now when you factor in uh, future inflation, maybe it's even a $30 million player. Uh, so, you know, in, in between his RB years and that first year, 
Singleton's potential if he becomes a star is probably in the range of $75 million. Uh, he got 30 <laughs> Right. And so, and so the, the, the actual terms of the contract, it's like, what, five? Five? Uh, five years. Yeah. $10 million guaranteed. Okay. Three team options that can bring the total to $30 million, And then if he makes a few all-star teams, there's some incentives and bonuses that could push it to 35 So if he maxes out and is like, as good as he can possibly be, it's $35 million when he's probably worth more than double that. Okay. Now, just uh, I have some more questions maybe about Singleton specifically, definitely the Astros. But um, with regard to these rules, right, and the sort of um, the way that teams must conduct themselves, the way that even players must conduct themselves – um, the, what they need to say when they're signing these sort of long-term deals and, and how there, there can't really be any sort of tacit admission of um, uh, playing time considerations, uh, consideration of playing time. Uh, playing time. Um, is it just a need for better rules, or do you think that this is, in the real world, this is the best system that's possible right now? No, there, there's a need for better rules. Okay. I mean, uh, so I think any time you're going to set up kind of a – a tipping point where if you're on this side of the line, then uh, I think uh, with threshold is maybe the better term. So if you're on this side of the threshold, you don't get this prize. And if you're one, you know, plus one unit and you cross the threshold, you get the full value of the prize. Then people are going to do whatever they can to keep you just under the threshold, right? Like this is a, uh, all these websites that are like, Free shipping on orders over twenty five dollars, and everything on the website is twenty four ninety nine. Like you know, they, they're like, we're gonna stick it, everything right under the threshold of free shipping, so we don't actually have to pay this. Uh, the, an incentive is created for people to get as many days of service as possible under one hundred and seventy two. So if you can give a major league player one hundred and seventy one days of service, you maximize the value because you get that year essentially for free. The guy will become a super two player, so you know there is a mechanism in place to get him more money, but. You don't have to, you get that extra year of team control by holding them down in the minor leagues for nine or ten days. The Super 2 system says, you know, if you give them 115, 110, whatever the number is, uh, days of service or less, then you get those entirely for free. You don't even have to pay the Super 2 penalty. Uh, so you can get, you know, the equivalent of 60% of a major league season at no extra cost. And when you have a threshold like that, teams are going to say, the incentive is set up for me to hold this player down for two months, trade two months of a prospect's performance, which is, you know, generally not awesome. Prospects don't usually come up and be Mike Trout or Yasiel Puig. So, you know, two months I'm probably losing less than a win in most cases. And in exchange, I get a full year of his in his prime value. Like when he's at his peak, I get uh, six six months of that value, which could be, you know, four or five, maybe six wins. Uh, it's, a, it's an easy trade for teams to make, and the incentives are aligned in the rules in order to, to have teams. Um, what would happen if every player in the major leagues was paid the same amount? Uh, uh, I think, uh, well, players wouldn't be happy, <laughs> first of all. I think if you saw like Hector Nuesi and Clayton Kershaw uh, receiving the same earnings, yeah. uh, uh, the fairness meter among all people, players, spectators, everyone would be like, this isn't right. Yeah. Uh, I think it would uh, it would make competitive balance tough. <laughs> uh, you might say, oh, well, you know, the Yankees couldn't just spend their money some other way, but these teams would still have giant amounts of revenue, so they would just figure out a way around it, right? So, like, the Yankees would be like, well, fine, we can't pay you any money, 
but we can buy you houses or we can, you know, bring you, uh, you know, copious amounts of cannolis or, I mean, you know, they would figure out some way to compensate. The well, that Ale- Alex Liddy would sign immediately with that team. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, anytime you set up rules that, that basically try and hinder a market that exists, people yeah. find a way around those rules and you create a black market. Oh, so like, uh, what is it called? Uh, college football? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, right. College sports in <laughs> college general. Sports, say, yeah, yeah, you're right. not allowed to pay these athletes unless you figure out how to do it. And <laughs> then you can win a lot of championships. Yeah, right. Uh, so that, yes. Yeah, so it would just create a black market. Now here, here's another thing. What if you were to, uh, what, if, what, what if you were to pay a player based off of the war he produced? Based off the war, like the exact, what if, what if, what if, what if the so you had uh, what if you were made what if Dave Cameron was made GM or maybe you yeah. wouldn't choose to do this but but say that, that there was somehow an agreement every player uh, players or the players union at least acknowledged that, uh, wins above replacement or some you know some approximation thereof I'm not saying it has to be that, but some way of measuring wins that uh, the player association said all right yeah that's fine and we want to reward players for producing and we want there to be a direct correlation to that. Uh, what would be the reaction to something like something along these lines? Uh, you know, I think probably not positive. I think we have to keep in mind. So the players' association is a union, and unions uh, operate in a, on almost exclusively on a service time experience ladder, where guys who've been around the longest get the most, and the young guys get hosed. And this is just how unions work. It's they're designed to reward longevity, and the longer you stay in the union, the better your benefits get. Uh, the Players Association is no, no different. They are, you know, happy to sell out the early years of great players and they're fine with Mike Trout making $500,000 when he's the best player in baseball because there's an expectation that as long as he stays healthy and he continues to perform and he stays in the union, he's gonna get his money. Uh, so I don't think people, I don't think there's a giant push of people feeling like the young guys are getting screwed because the assumption is that as long as the young guys are worth their money, they'll have a chance to, you know, sign a long-term deal that, you know, pays them uh, what they're worth eventually. Uh, I do think it would be interesting if, you know, this will not happen. This is, you know, uh, strictly a fantasy. If, for instance, a team said, uh, we're going to let the players decide who gets paid what. So maybe, you know, you're the Yankees. You have a $220 million budget or whatever it is. And you tell the, the players on the Yankees, we're going to put $220 million into a room. And you'd figure out how to divvy it up. <laughs> you guys go in and you, you, you vote for shares or you do a fight to the death or you do whatever you want to do until you have decided who's going to, who's going to receive what. And then you tell us where to send the checks. Like that would be kind of fascinating to figure out. You know, do the Angels sit around and be like, well, Mike Trout's our best player. Maybe we shouldn't pay him the same as, like, a generic middle reliever who just got pit, pulled up out of AAA. Or do they say, like, he's the young kid in the corner, uh, he doesn't get a say, and, you know, Albert Pools gets even more money. Yeah, that would, yeah, that would be interesting. I wonder if it would be easy to do without violence. I mean, wait, and also, would it, would it just turn into, like, a Lord of the Rings situation where, uh, uh, where there would just be, uh, in, I mean, it'd be all out, uh, animal type behavior. 
What was it? Gilbert Arenas brought a gun into an NBA locker room uh, a while back. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine that that situation might happen again. <laughs> yeah. There was like two hundred million dollars stacked in a room. Yeah, someone's bringing, someone's bringing a gun. I think that it, whatever would happen is Ugwith Urbina would be paid in the end. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> guys like that would be like this guy is getting fifty million a year. We're all scared of him. Yeah, right. It's exactly right. Or uh, or Miguel Olivo himself. I yeah, think that's would right. Do Miguel, well, well, I think Miguel Olivo might just die. Uh, there would be like uh, some kind of physical altercation and someone would be like, we don't want to pay this guy anything. I think Miguel Oliva would not continue to exist in such a, so, yeah, such yeah, a situation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but okay. the, that would be like a fascinating chemistry experiment, right? Like, does this team get along after they screw each other over? Or, you know, oh, I think uh, it would always be, oh man, there would really have, there would, it'd be hard not for someone not to end up bitter. Right? Oh yeah. No, a lot of people. I think the teams would hate themselves. <laughs> like, uh, they, there would be so much animosity that it would not go over very well. Right. Uh, now, with regard to, so we were talking about Jonathan Singleton. He is a player within the Houston Astros organization. Now, on, uh, now with the major league uh, part of that particular organization, uh, you uh, you did well. Maybe the end of last week. Looks like the end of last week. Maybe the beginning of this week. Maybe it was the end of last week. Whatever May thirtieth was, you wrote about uh, the best and worst teams. Yeah. What does that feel like? Monday to you, or does it feel like that was Friday? that was last Friday? Oh yeah, last Friday. That seems reasonable yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, the Astros would, in theory, by the methodology uh, devised by Dave Cameron, which we uh, assume is a is a nearly sound methodology, uh, the Astros were a sort of uh, platonic above five hundred uh, above five hundred team over the last month. Yeah, well, yeah, that I mean that's according to the methodology of counting up wins and losses over the last thirty days, not according to anything I did. Oh wait, did they also do that too? They did win more games than they lost. They had like the fourth best record in baseball in May. They, they no, were they like, didn't. They were like legitimately a good team in May. So what's go- so what's happening? Is George Springer happening? Oh, I so, guess also Dallas Keuchel and Colin McHugh are happening. Yes, those three things. Are, so Colin McHugh and Dallas Keuchel are pitching like the two best pitchers in baseball over the last month, and George Springer did a Yasiel Puig impression and destroyed the baseball. So you had you know two number one starters or guys pitching like number one starters, and a power hitting outfielder who you know is hitting at uh, best player in baseball levels, that's going to make your team better. <laughs> it's like three impact players playing at, you know, a pro-rated 15-war pace. Just those three guys are going to carry you to a decent amount of victories. Uh, and, you know, Jose Altuve had a good month. And, there, you know, there are other guys who aren't atrocious on that team. Uh, but they really, it's, it's Keuchel, McHugh, and Springer are responsible for the majority of the turnaround. I think with... Springer and Keiko, there's reasons to think like, man, maybe we've actually got something here as like core pieces. McHugh, I would remain a little more skeptical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, maybe there's something the Astros are doing that's allowing guy, mediocre pitchers to pitch above their level. Uh, in which case maybe McHugh is more a symptom of, uh, some, some other environmental factor that's helping rather than, oh, Colin McHugh is amazing now. You, uh, <laughs> um, how long, do you think you've been able to uh, to pronounce Dallas Keuchel's name correctly? Well, I saw him pitch against, uh, I don't know, the Twins or someone a couple years ago when he was, like, throwing 86 and he got destroyed. And I remember watching him pitch, and I'm like, this is a symptom of the Astros just not having any talent at all, that they have to run this guy out on a major league level. Like, this is maybe the worst pitcher I've ever seen in the major leagues. I mean, he was a tr- he was awful. Like, he had not, there was no stuff, there was no command. I think he had more walks than strikeouts in his debut year. Uh, just really atrocious. And now he's good. Yeah, I don't think that I accidentally 
saw a Dallas Keuchel game. <laughs> so I can tell you that I have not had a need to pronounce his name correctly um, maybe until this year. Uh, have you been calling him Kushel? I probably have, yeah. Yeah. Um, that would be the, uh, I think, the most, uh, the best guess. If, yeah. you didn't, if you'd never heard anyone say it, I would have gone with, like, Kushel or something. Right. Keuchel makes it sound maybe, now it sounds more German than it, than otherwise it would have. Right. Yeah. yeah. Keuchel sounds like, uh, K-I-K-E-L or, you know, something along those lines. Yeah. Not K-U-C-H. Like, that's, sort of, I don't think if you told someone this guy's name is Keuchel, mm-hmm. Keuchel, they would ever go with K-E-U-C-H. Right. In a million, a million years. So you could give a million monkeys a million typewriters, that would never come up. <laughs> I think, I think that if you, um, if you, I think it's a good, it's a good uh, litmus test for how, for how long a player has been good, um, by looking at how long you've been able to pronounce his name correctly. As long as we're not, as long as we're not considering uh, Eno Saris, whose name you uh, intentionally mispronounce. Uh, it's kind of fun because Eno doesn't pronounce anyone's yeah, name correctly. Anyone's so why should he have his name pronounced correctly? Right, and actually, the uh, I should maybe have I should maybe get on this. I think maybe uh, later. When does the uh, MLB draft start this week? I think, Thursday. Right? Yeah, yeah, Thursday. Uh, well, perhaps what we'll do is uh, we'll I'll, after the first round or so is completed, uh, I will uh, quiz Eno on uh, precisely how these these new players' names are supposed to be pronounced. Why are you waiting until after the first round? Uh, I feel like this should be like a daily feature on the site. Uh, it, well, yeah, it, it'll be. I, I don't like know. We should replace the game scores, the nerd scores, with just Eno Saris pronouncing today's starting pitchers. Yeah, well, I'll tell you why. Because I have to travel tomorrow, but then I will be safely ensconced somewhere else in Italy uh, in a couple of days, and so I will do it then. Well, couldn't you just email Eno a list of names and have him like record himself? Ugh, I'm not going to trust him with any sort of technological endeavor. <laughs> okay. Um, because you're such a technological wizard. I'm pretty, you're I'm the not, glue uh, that's holding this technology I'm not good. Hey, listen, Craig Robinson, no less a personage than Craig Robinson, who's a talented... Oh, he's he's aesthetically minded. He was impressed. He was impressed by how well the podcast is edited together, given the fact that the internet breaks all the time. Okay. Well, I'm glad you impressed someone. Yeah, because he's... You know what the difference between you and him is? He listens to the podcast. Yeah, why would I do that? <laughs> that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't sound like a good thing at all. Right. Okay. So the Houston Astros—is uh, this uh, one of these things where we say, "Oh, they've played quite well, quite well recently"? This is a sign of things to come. Did we say that? Well, I think in the long term, yes. The fact that the Astros have some young players coming up who are performing well, uh, and Jeff wrote about this last week. I think we need to stop treating the Astros as the, the doormat of all doormats. And if you're still thinking that the Astros are, you know, the 120 loss team that they played like the last couple of years, you're going to underestimate them. Um, I think at the same time, you have to be careful and say it's a month and, it, and it's a month driven by George Springer playing way over his head. And, you know, he's a good prospect, not the best player in baseball. And it's driven by Colin McHugh and Dallas Keigel pitching like, you know, Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer. Not going to continue. So you have three guys performing extremely well who are absolutely going to regress. Are there enough pieces in place that are going to positively offset that loss? Probably not. I mean, I think you could look at maybe Jason Castro's a little better than he's played. Singleton's going to help. Um, you know, getting Jesse Crane back will improve the bullpen. But there's not a huge amount of guys on this team that you could look at and be like, they're vastly underachieving. So their improvement will offset the regression from Keiko McHugh and Springer. I think, you know, what we really have is three guys playing over their head, uh, and when they come back to Earth, the Astros will resume being 
worse than they are now. They're not as atrocious as they were, but they're still not a good team. Right, but but as you do know, I mean, it does really seem as though there are there are positive signs there, and of course we know that they have um, a pretty they have they have a promising level of talent throughout their organization. Um, it, it actually seems because I know that you've written I know that you've you've written about and uh, and certainly advocate on behalf of teams may, maybe not blowing up uh, their rosters. And within reason, perhaps trying to win every year. Uh, the Astros seem to be perhaps an exception to this in that they really have had some real uh, um, terrible years, but they've actually have actually gone through like a proper, um, I guess, a proper rebuilding stage. Or, or is that not true? Do you think? No, I mean, I think so. I wouldn't say that I advise the teams to try and win every year. I think teams should measure the cost of being. Atrocious, and I think the Astros have to measure this cost of like, they've gotten the number one pick now three years in a row. They've gotten more draft pool money to spend. So they've been able to stockpile a lot of young talent. And in the, in the process, their TV ratings are zero. And their sports, their regional sports network is bankrupt. <laughs> and they're, they're actually suing it in order to try and change the terms and, you know, figure out how to make money out of this thing. Uh, I think there's a case to be made that when you're this bad and you alienate your fan base, it's going to do long-term harm to your revenues, uh, or at least short-term harm. Maybe maybe these fan base is recoverable, and if they put a good team on the field, the guys will come back. But in the short term, this limits the Astros' abilities to make money, and making money limits your ability to spend money. And so, uh, you know, stockpiling prospects is great, as long as you can do it without... Uh, offsetting the gain by causing your future payroll to go down by 30 or 40 million dollars. At that point, maybe you would have been a little bit better off winning a few more games, making a little bit more money, and having that money to spend available when you're good. Versus, you know, now all of a sudden you're the Tampa Bay Rays or the Oakland A's, you have a very good team and you have, you know, the 27th highest payroll in baseball. Do you know that the, do you know that Houston has the fourth largest population? Uh, yeah, the American that's, city? that's, that's one of the reasons why I think burning the fan base to the ground might not be a great idea. You know, I don't know if you've looked. I only did it recently, and I, you know, I hadn't done it for a while. There is, a, there is a, in some cases, a pretty huge departure for me between the the actual population of cities and what they imagine their populations to be. Uh, for example, San Jose, California, has the tenth largest population, and I don't know. These might be. I don't know if this is like within the city limits, or if this has to do. This concerns a. Uh, you know uh, the uh, metropolitan area, but uh, but that's crazy. Also, Austin, Texas is 11th. Did you know that? I did not. Did I, you know? I think I think some of these uh, lists where they're surprisingly high are just focusing on the city limits. I think like uh, this has always been something that's been interesting since I grew up in Seattle. Seattle's never ranked particularly high on many of these lists because there's a lot of cities around Seattle where people live and they just commute into town. So if you count, like, Seattle and its surrounding areas, it does much better than if you just count, like, the downtown portion of the city. Okay. Uh, I would imagine these lists that have, like, San Jose and Austin are probably just counting, like, the actual diameter of the city limits. Okay, yeah. So I should look at the, uh, what do I, oh, uh, there's the, a term for this. The MSA, the Metropolitan Something Area. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. Well, I'll do that next time. I'm not going to do that all the time. Uh, all right. Oh, you, oh, look at this. We, we've almost reached uh, Dave Cameron's. Uh, limit for the week, uh, but I do want to get one more question out of you. Uh, you wrote another piece on, uh, uh, and, 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 and you, uh, I guess last week, last week, maybe you did it? Yeah, you did it last week too. And it, we got heat maps now, that's the point. We got heat maps at fangraphs.com. 
we we've had them before, but they were the kind of blobby color gradient type of heat map that doesn't actually tell you anything. Yeah. Now we have heat maps with. Uh, kind of a grid breakdown with percentages and uh, much more useful. Okay, so we've had the heat maps, but now we have heat maps. They, they tell us something that we can begin to understand, what, more about pitchers and hitters, I guess? Do we learn, know more about pitchers now or do we know more about hitters now? Or do we know about them together, all of them together? I think maybe they're more they're more helpful for hitters. So I think, uh, you know, the first post I did about them, was kind of introducing them, uh, was about Mike Trout. And I think this is uh, maybe one of the things that's interesting is, uh, looking at where Trout has hit the ball, like the linear weights heat map, I think is the best thing on the internet. Like we, to be able to see the run value of all uh, outcomes on pitches in that location is fantastic. Because what we've generally seen before is you're limited to like batting average or slugging percentage or something that doesn't factor in all the swings and misses or all the fouls or all the called strikes. To look at every play and the linear weights value of that play in that location is awesome. So to see like Trout absolutely destroying pitches down and in. And really struggling on pitches up in the zone, like that's actually a thing that I think probably we didn't know. I didn't know that Mike Trout was struggling on pitches up in the zone. This is actually new information. Uh, of course, as Eno showed with his piece with Chris Young, which also utilized the heat maps, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff to be gained from pitchers as well. And I think you can see like the home run to fly ball chart that was in Eno's piece that talked about where the uh, home runs actually come from. If you see it, like the very top of the strike zone, the home run to fly ball rate was in that nine, ten percent, well, eight or nine percent range below the league average. This is where guys like Matt Kane and Justin Merlander and Clayton Kershaw and some of these fly ball pitchers who have traditionally beaten their homer to fly ball expectations pitch. And you can see, like, if you can actually locate in this area, you're not necessarily going to get killed with a home run. It's when you try and go down and in and you miss and they get under it. That's when you're screwed. And so it's, uh, I think there are interesting things to be learned on both sides. So one one thing I think you uh, you when you were making a point of this with your because you did a a piece also using the heat maps uh, looking at the importance of uh, pitching down and away yeah uh, and in the sort of tweet that accompanied it uh, you mentioned that uh, I think you said something effective it might be manly to pitch inside but down and away um, down and away works. is uh, huh. works right yeah. And I don't think yeah. that you – and I, I saw people say something to this effect. I don't think you would disagree with this fact that it doesn't mean you entirely abandon pitching inside. Right. I mean, I even wrote in the post. Like, there's still a game theory aspect. That you cannot just throw in one location or people will adjust. If you just pitched down and away, the hitter would scoot closer to the plate, and then it wouldn't be so much down and away anymore. You have to get him to stand in the position that he's currently standing in order to make that down and away pitch so successful. Uh, and this isn't a call for pitchers to only pitch in one location. It is a recognition of the fact that not all locations are equal, and the down and away location is probably the best one. Right. So, th- so th- actually, this reminds me a little bit in football of the, the, this gap between passing and running, right? Uh, because passing the ball in American football is is worth like is worth a lot more uh, in terms of expected points than running is. Right. And if you look at it just in terms of the raw values. For passing versus the raw values for running, there's, it's hard to make an argument that it's hard not to make the argument that basically every team should be passing more. Right. Uh, but they don't. And yeah, I mean, I think that, so. There's questions of whether that's a market inefficiency or whether there's a necessary minimum of running in order to keep passing value high, right? Like, where are the diminishing returns? And that's always one of the interesting questions. Is like. Uh, at what point does a really positive thing stop being as positive 
where you reach the point on the curve where, you know, now there's some expectation from the defense to be able to adjust, and this thing that used to be really good is not as good anymore. Right. But it seems as though you could make a case, correct me if I'm wrong, you could make a case that uh, teams could, exp- or pitchers could probably continue to err more on the side of pitching outside uh, with some success. We might not be at a perfect equilibrium between pitching inside and pitching outside. I think, you know, I, if you've played baseball or, you know, watched Eastman of baseball, you've almost certainly heard people drone on and on about needing to pitch inside and moving guys off the plate and making sure that they're scared. And a lot of these concepts that have to do with, um, you know, kind of like I, like I referred to in the tweet, pitching inside being manly and pitching away being a symptom of fear. And we see a guy like nibbling on the outside corner commentators will often talk about how he just needs to, you know, trust his stuff and stop trying to, you know, be so perfect with his location and just, you know, challenge the hitter. And a lot of these, like, kind of alpha male concepts uh, are still pretty prevalent in baseball. And I think there's evidence that they're not really true. Uh, you know, I think, like, a guy like Raphael Betancourt has become pretty well-known for pitching away almost his entire career. He's had a pretty nice career overall. I think, you know, with the Braves in the mid-90s, Leo Mazzoni was, like, all about the down-and-away pitch, and uh, Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox and these guys, you know, they lived in the outer half of the plate. It worked really well for them. I think uh, in the future, I would not be surprised if we learned that pitchers are pitching inside more frequently than they need to be in order to come to some kind of equilibrium. And if you stay in that down-and-away zone, especially if you have a, a good pitch receiver who can steal some of those strikes, and, and that's the area where umpires miss the most calls as pitches down and away, um, then I think, you know, you can probably have a pretty successful career without pitching inside as often as pitchers have before. Do you think that there have been maybe runs lost um, or there, there may be production lost by players in other cases where maybe uh, th- this sort of thing, you sort of like trying to conform to uh, the, uh, the, the sort of the masculine, uh, the masculine strategy as opposed to the smartest strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think you know you can look at a lot of different areas of baseball. I think injuries is another factor here where you have a lot of pitchers. Jose Fernandez, you know, talked about he knew his elbow was hurting. He knew that something wasn't right, uh, but he took them out anyway uh, and said, you know. For my team, I owe it to them to take the mound. Even as a, you know, diminished version of myself with some elbow pain, not at 100%, uh, I'm not gonna be able to pitch like the Jose Fernandez of normal days, um, but you know, I have to do this for my team. This is what is required of me. And then his elbow explodes, and his team is worse off. Like, there was nothing intelligent about, uh, <laughs> Jose Fernandez's thought process. It was based on some kind of code that is detrimental to everyone involved. And it's like the kind of code that should be abolished from baseball, except for it's a mindset. And so you can't just outlaw this way of thinking. But if you could, baseball would be better off, and you'd have healthier pitchers. Uh, I think the same thing is probably true with location pitching, is where pitchers say, okay, I've gone away a couple times in a row. I have to come inside just so that, you know, the pitcher, the, the hitter knows that I'm not scared to do so, and then they, they come inside and their location's off and the ball gets hit 450 feet, and if they had just, you know, continued to pitch away, maybe it would have induced a ground ball to second base. Yeah, especially if you're pitching to Mike Moustakas, is that right? Uh, yeah, well, I think uh, with him, you just have to not throw it in the zone. Yeah. It, just, it doesn't really matter if it's down in the way. You can go up, you can go in, you can go down, you can go any location that's not over the plate, and he'll swing at it. He'll, he'll make contact with it, and... Yeah. Hit a, hit, hit a weak ground ball. Hit a weak ground ball. Very good. Yeah.
Yeah, so always pitch against Mike Moustakis is... That, that would be a great way to be a good pitcher. Just face Mike Moustakis every at-bat. Yeah. All right, well, Cameron, you've uh, officially... Uh, uh, you've, uh, what is this? You've something. You've met your obligation. Is that what we say? You fulfilled? fulfilled. Yeah, you fulfilled your obligation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. I feel. I feel, I feel fulfilled. Feel good about yourself. All right. We'll stick around for some one second, but uh, in the meantime, uh, thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That is Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. Manager. Look at it. He's a managing editor. He manages. He edits. Uh, that's mostly what he does. Yeah. Uh, I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.